Good, 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 good. Let's read then together. So we're in Luke chapter 16. It will come up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but if you have got one, as always, I just want to say please do open it up and read for yourselves there, or if it's on your tablet or something, then get it on that. Uh, So we're in Luke chapter 16. Let's read from 1 to 9. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what's this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. This one back on. Whee! So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, well, a hundred measures of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What on earth is going on here, right? So there's a rich man who has a manager, a steward, who is responsible for uh, kind of managing his assets, his personal wealth, the, the assets of his household. And this manager is wasting the guy's resources. He's doing a very bad job. Instead of at least maintaining or keeping stable or ideally increasing the wealth of his master, this steward is is squandering it. He's wasting away his manager's wealth. He's mismanaging the estate. And Jesus doesn't tell us why he's doing that or how he's doing that, because that isn't the point. The guy is brought in to his master and told, game over. You're fired. That's it. Done. He's lost his job. But he obviously has some kind of notice period to work because he doesn't instantly disappear. He's still able to call a meeting with the debtors of his master. uh, And faced with losing everything and in a desire to secure his own future, he meets with these debtors and on behalf of his master, without permission, writes off sizable chunks of debt. In, in both cases that we're given, it's somewhere between a year and a half and two years' salary uh, for an average worker that this guy writes off. And he does it in order that he would gain favour with these people once he's lost his job, so that he'd still be able to go and receive hospitality in their homes. The master hears about it, and instead of berating him and going, like, you were already fired, like, now you're in real trouble... You're giving my money away. The master, bizarrely, 
paradoxically commends him. As far as we're aware, the guy still loses his job, but it's almost like the master's like, I mean, I can't fault your ingenuity. Like, you're going to go far. (laughs) Uh, He commends him for what he's done. And then, most bizarrely of all, Jesus seems to apply it to his followers, because remember the first thing we read was that he was sharing this with his disciples. He said to his disciples, most bizarrely, Jesus seems to take what this guy's done and then say to his listeners that they should use money to make friends with others who will one day welcome them. You think, what? Like, what's going on? Is Jesus endorsing deceit? Theft from your boss under certain circumstances in order to gain favour with others. Is there a Robin Hood kind of thing going on here? Is it like, well, it's okay because the guy was rich. He probably didn't miss it anyway. Rob from the rich and give to the poor. Is that what's happening? And what's all this about using unrighteous wealth to make friends who welcome us into eternal dwellings? This is just slightly bizarre, isn't it? It, like it is. <laughs> um, it's okay to admit it. Now, we've got to take some time to understand this. Because if we take this as a, a, a kind of moral lesson, or a, like Jesus is saying, go behave like this man without understanding what's going on, then we're going to get ourselves in a whole heap of trouble. So the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus' parables broadly sit in three categories. And so when we read one of Jesus' parables, we've got to ask ourselves, which category does this fall into? Because if we miscategorize it, then we end up misapplying it and misunderstanding it. So firstly, there are parables that Jesus tells that are about the surprising or unexpected nature of God's kingdom. So he talks about the kingdom as like a, a mustard seed. It's like the smallest, most insignificant of all, so it seems, tiny beginnings, And yet it grows up into this incredible tree that all the birds of the air kind of flock into and find shelter. The surprising nature of God's kingdom. Secondly, Jesus tells parables uh, about the values or ethic of the kingdom. How people who are in the kingdom of God should live. And then thirdly, Jesus' parables are sometimes about a decision but a decision that's forced on someone as they're confronted with something. And these parables that Jesus tells are about the coming of God's kingdom and that as God's kingdom comes, it demands a response from people. As God's kingdom comes, they are forced into a position of needing to do something about it, of needing to respond in some way to God's kingdom coming. And I think this parable, and I'm not alone in it, so don't think I just kind of went crazy this week in my study, uh, that this parable sits in the third category, that Jesus often in his teachings uses this image of God as like the master of the household, as the authority figure in his parables, as the father And in this parable, the steward is is forced by his master into action, into a moment of decision, into a response. He's put in a position by his master as he's fired where he has to decide, what am I going to do in order to secure my future? 
there's a moment of decision for him. So that's kind of part one in helping us understand what's going on here. Is This is about a response that needs to be made to the coming of God's kingdom. And then to help us more, it's really essential that we understand the, the narrative context or the, the setting that Jesus told this parable into. Who was he with? What else was going on at that point in time? We need to know who he's speaking to and, and also how they respond to what he's speaking to. Because how his first hearers respond gives us a good clue of what he was actually talking about. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because they don't have to wade through all the cultural bits and try and unpick it going like they were there with him. They understood that and he was addressing them firstly. And so their response gives us a good clue as to what he was talking about. So the first bit of narrative context that we have for this of setting Actually, the last thing we've read where it tells us where Jesus is and who he's with was at the start of Luke chapter 15, where we were last week. I don't know if you remember that, but the first thing we read in Luke chapter 15 was this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus, that is. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the last kind of scene-setting thing we read. And, and that's still the context that this was spoken into. So the Pharisees think Jesus is being too lenient with the kindness and grace of God. That he needs to be more legalistic with these people. They need to get themselves straight before they can come to him. They need to stop what they're doing before they can come to him. They need to attend the right services, go through the right rituals, and be good, upright law-keeping people like the Pharisees before they should be welcomed by Jesus. But they've misunderstood the heart of God and they've misapplied the law of God. And so Jesus tells them, as we read last week, these accounts of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son to help them understand the generous and forgiving heart of God, that a God who welcomes repentant sinners, a God who welcomes repentant sinners with joy and with celebration, who pours out love and kindness in abundance on them. And then here in chapter 16, having told those three parables to the Pharisees, we read Jesus turns now to his disciples and tells them this different parable. His disciples, they've been there listening to the three previous ones about the the lost coin and the lost son and the lost sheep. They've been listening in and, and then he tells them this fourth one. And now the Pharisees are in the background listening in, but the disciples are his focus at this point. The same people are present and it flows straight on. So that tells us that what Jesus was addressing in those other parables about the heart of God and the generosity of God and the forgiving heart of a father is still in view here. The the Pharisees saying, you shouldn't accept people like that, is still in view when Jesus now turns to his disciples. So we know who he's talking to. 
and what's going on at that point in time. The other thing we need to see is how they respond, like I said. And, and we'll read that in a moment, but just to give you a heads up, the Pharisees are earwigging as he talks to the disciples. And we read this from verse 14 about how they respond. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So there's something about what Jesus says in this parable and what he follows it up with that caused the Pharisees to mock him. That caused them to think his view of money and how we view and use the resources we've received is laughable. That they literally mock Jesus for the way he teaches his people that they should view and use money. So, this isn't a moral lesson about certain behaviour types that people should or shouldn't do. This teaching is about the coming of the kingdom of God and how we should respond to that. Particularly about how we should respond with the resources that we've been given, and particularly the money we have. This parable is designed to bring its listeners to a point of decision about how we'll respond. It's designed to cause us to stop and consider, am I being shrewd in a worldly way, or in a godly way. So, to distill it down, Jesus in this parable is making a point that the coming kingdom forces us to decide what we value most, what we're trusting in, and calls us to make a shrewd decision about how we use our resources in the light of eternity. This steward, in his moment of crisis, as the decision is forced on him, makes a decision he makes a choice he realizes in that moment that there's something more reliable more deserving of putting his trust in than the bottom line than money and that's people and so he prioritizes people and the future of his relationship with people over money in this moment and he's commended for it and Jesus points out that even the sons of this world, even those outside of the kingdom, when push comes to shove, when faced with a moment of crisis like that steward, who he uses as an example, realise they know that there is something more stable, more trustworthy and more reliable than money. Money will fail. Have you noticed, like Jesus even spells that out. Verse 9. He just says, when it fails. It's not like if. It says, when it fails. When, it's, when it doesn't fulfill everything it promises. The steward, who was not a goodie, is used by Jesus as an example to make a point. 
Now, this is the important bit that we've got to get right. What Jesus isn't doing is saying, this guy's morals are to be imitated. He's not saying we should all go around defrauding people because money's not important after all. So it doesn't matter if you rob someone off. That's not what Jesus is saying. Okay? (laughs) He's not held up as an example of impeccable moral performance. Actually, Jesus uses this man deliberately, someone who does something wrong, Jesus uses him for contrast to make a point. He's like, this guy wisely prioritizes this guy, this deceitful guy who just stole from his boss, wisely prioritizes relationship with people and the security of future relationships over money. And he's commended for it. And what we're supposed to join the dots of in there, and Jesus says, like, if even the sons of darkness or the sons of this world are shrewd in this way, like, how much more the children of light? There's supposed to be a a how much more going on for us. It's like, if this guy, who is by no means a a good example... (laughs) of someone who we should be living like, understands that there is something more than money to build your life on. There is something more trustworthy, more important, more valuable to build your life on. Then how much more should you, as disciples of Jesus, how much more should you, as children of light, realize that? And see money for what it is and build your life and invest in something more substantial, more reliable, more trustworthy. And then Jesus gives a specific instruction to his disciples in the first bit of application to to use these resources, namely finances, at your disposal to gain friends who will welcome them into eternal dwellings. And it's like, okay, still not quite clear. What is Jesus advocating we do? What's he advocating we do? He's advocating that our use of money, when we realize that it's not going to bring us security, when we're not trusting it, to save us, or to bring us significance, that we use it in such a way that is incredibly generous, that blesses others, so much so that people see our hope isn't in money, but is in God. They're like, man, if you're giving that much away, like your hope isn't in money. That's what he's advocating. He's, he's saying that, Our attitude to money and the way we give money away, our generosity and our radical generosity, just like the generosity of the father and the prodigal son, should be so extraordinary that people can't help but go away with the conclusion, firstly, that our trust is not in money. Because if it were, there's no way we'd be generous like that with it. We'd be keeping a whole lot more back for ourselves, just in case, for a rainy day. And also, that we should use our money and we should live with the kind of generosity 
that is incredibly attractive to others, but ultimately points them towards our true hope in Christ. When he says, those who will welcome you into eternal dwellings, what he's talking about is people who have become Christians after witnessing the generosity of Christians. It's people who have been so overwhelmed and struck by the way Christians use their finances, by the fact they're not putting their trust in money or job security or other things, but instead their trust is so clearly in God that they be incredibly open-handed and generous with their resources, that people, as a result of that, come themselves to find life, faith, hope in Jesus. And so they're the people who will be with in eternity. And if they die before you, they'll welcome you into eternal dwellings because they're there. They're there as a result of your witness of how you handled your resources see last week i said christians should be the most content people on the face of the earth this week i want to say we should be the most generous people on the face of the earth because as christians we get to see everything that we have as a gift from him we get to see everything we have as an opportunity to serve and bless others, to show them what the generous heart of our Father in heaven is like. He's not withheld anything from us, but has given us every good and perfect gift. Freely we've received from him, and so freely we give. We use our money to advance the kingdom instead of fulfilling our own appetites. what Jesus is talking about with this parable he's like even this guy got it there's something better to do than secure your finances how much more guys then Jesus continues to to expound on it we read from verse 10 he says one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I just want to point out as we read through these verses, when you read faithful, you can read trustworthy. Because when you translate it back, the the word there, it's like the same, it's this same thrust over and over again. These next few verses we're going to read are about trust, 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 trust. Okay? So as one who is faithful or trustworthy in a very little is also trustworthy or faithful in much. And one who is dishonest or untrustworthy in a very little is also dishonest or untrustworthy in much. If then you have not been trustworthy, faithful, with the unrighteous wealth, that just means worldly wealth, physical money, resource that you have at your disposal, then who will entrust you the true riches The riches of the kingdom of God. And if you have not been faithful or trustworthy with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus burrows down a bit further for us here. 
after the opening parable. And these verses here are, are all about what are you trusting? Who are you trusting? And what can you be trusted with? We can't serve God and money. Jesus, the word he uses for money here, or unrighteous wealth, talks about mammon. It has a, a spiritual overtone. He like personifies money as a, a power, an unholy power. We can't serve God and money because money or mammon in many ways, sets itself up in opposition to God in our hearts. It wants to be trusted. And if you've noticed that about finances, like it wants to be trusted. Like it, it promises security and stability and hope for the future. It's not just money, there can be other things, but Jesus chooses money here, and not for the only time in his ministry. And he chooses money, I think, because it's particularly powerful in its allure to us, in what it promises to us. This idol, mammon, carries promises that it can't deliver, but it makes them anyway. And we get suckered in. The money promises us all kinds of things. It itself sets itself up as the solution. Actually, as a functional saviour to us. And we look at it in that way. It can give us power, can't it? Wealthy seem to have an awful lot of power. It can give us status. Comfort. In some ways, we feel it can save us. It can save us from being without. It can save us from the discomfort of certain situations. Money can purchase and access the best food, best clothing, the most comfortable, warm, and safe shelter. Money can provide the best health care. It's interesting at the moment, even on a global scale, as we look at the pandemic and how that's being handled, and we look at vaccine rollout across nations, who has access to the vaccine. Healthcare at this moment is where the money is, right? It's not right, but that's how it is. Money can open the door to the most exciting or pleasurable experiences, so it seems. It gives us a measure of safety, security and happiness that can seem to us much more immediate and much more tangible than God's provision of those things for his people. If we listen to it. And for those reasons, money makes a powerful competitor to God's claim on our hearts. Jesus isn't ignorant of our material needs. We read elsewhere. So you don't have to worry. Maddie read it earlier, right? You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to worry about what you're going to wear or eat or those things. Like, 
He knows and he cares. He provides. He wants to be clear though. You can't serve God and money. The tight-fisted person. He's just... They've just got to make sure that they've got enough and, and enough for the just-in-case and then enough for the, the just-in-case. And because they need to make sure they can't possibly give any away because that might leave them without enough for the rainy day. The workaholic. Those who spend their days and nights worrying, anxious about their finances are in some ways living in service to mammon. The Pharisees fell into this category. We read, they love money. And so Jesus' teaching was too unpalatable for them to accept. Their service to mammon meant there wasn't room in their hearts and lives to serve God. The, the coming of the kingdom forced them, as with everyone else, into a moment of decision. And at this point in time, the Pharisees are going, hey, we, we sticking with money? That's where our foundations are. That's where our trust is. We're going to serve that, not God. Stark is serious. Our finances and bank statements reveal the things we truly love. I think as Christians we can talk a very good game about generosity, but the one who sees our hearts knows perfectly whether we love him and his kingdom and whether we want to use the resources that he's given us in order to advance his kingdom through generosity towards those around us who are in need, or whether we want to use it for our own comfort and our own security and our own pleasure and our own ends, whether we're investing it in his kingdom or our own kingdom. God wants followers whose hearts have been made generous as they delight themselves in the generosity that he's shown them. That's why this flows straight off the back of the prodigal son. As we understand the incredible generosity of the father, we're called into it as his people to participate. And you know, if you're secure in him, if you're secure in him and his provision for you, if you've understood the generous heart of the father, then you'll be able to be open-handed and generous with your material wealth and possessions. Because those things don't define you. They don't secure you. You know that they're promising you something they can't ultimately fulfill. If you view them as generous gifts from a generous father, then you feel a freedom to be generous with them. And as you do, you point people to him. Being faithful in these things. We go back to our trustworthy or faithful. Being faithful in these things, with what we've received now, these temporary material things, God says, is a hallmark of those who have also been entrusted with eternal wealth. You've been trusted with the riches of heaven. We'll be people who are trustworthy with the resources we have here and now at our disposal. But we read on from verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. (laughs) 
we can hear this teaching about incredible generosity and I think sometimes mammon has such a grip on us that we can think of all the reasons why that can't possibly apply to us or why it would be foolish or irresponsible to live that way. That's the Pharisees. That's why they responded in this way. They're like, you're crazy, Jesus. No one treats money like that. We've got to be far more sensible. They ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, this could be like a whole series in itself. And we're just going to quickly skip across the surface of this section now and see how there's, it's, it's not separate, there's continuity in what Jesus is saying. He jumps to adultery and we're like, whoa, where did that come from? It's part of the same flow of reasoning and argument that Jesus is saying. There's two things in play for the Pharisees as their hearts are being exposed by Jesus' teaching. Firstly, they love money. They're putting their hope and trust in money rather than in God. And consequently, they think that Jesus is teaching to his disciples about radical generosity and finding your security not in money is crazy. And the second is that in their view, Jesus was being way too loose with the law, inviting these sinners. Remember, that's where we started. That's the last bit of narrative. They criticized him, they grumbled against him because he's welcoming tax collectors and sinners into his presence. And then he's told them a story about the generous father who welcomes repentant sinners and celebrates that they come to him. And the Pharisees, still in that place, now they've had their love of money exposed to, and also their view that Jesus was being too loose with the law. That these people who are gathered around him, these sinners and tax collectors, are not the kind of people he should be accepting. They are not the kind of people who should be welcomed into the kingdom of God. They haven't observed the right traditions. They haven't prayed the right prayers. They haven't attended the right services. The Pharisees were trusting money and they were trusting their own self-righteousness we looked at last week and Jesus here exposes their hearts as for all their all their eagerness to appear holy as you're eager to justify yourselves before men for their eagerness to appear holy they aren't actually interested in being holy Jesus wants them to see that his coming which is why he talks about John who proclaimed that Jesus was coming and that the kingdom was coming through Jesus that the advent of the kingdom of God will require these Pharisees to respond and to make a decision. That they can't continue as they are in self-righteousness and in love of money. And he uses divorce and remarriage as a way of illustrating it to them. Because they would permit it. They were okay with it. 
the letter of the law, the letter of the law contained regulations for how divorce should be handled. But it was there as a concession because of the hardness of man's heart rather than because God lowered his view on the lasting covenant of marriage. And here Jesus presses an expectation that actually they would seek to go beyond the law. He says, the law hasn't passed away with my coming. You think I'm being too loose with it, but actually my call is above it. There are concessions in the law for how marriage should be, for how divorce should be handled. But I'm going to go a step further. This isn't about the letter of the law. This is about the heart of the law and about God's design for marriage. And Jesus presses an expectation that those who follow him would seek to go beyond the law and comply with God's original intent for marriage. The arrival of the kingdom doesn't nullify the law, but transforms the hearts of the citizens of the kingdom. Those whose hearts have been renewed by God transforms their hearts so that they will willingly obey him. And in so doing, be faithful to the heart of the law, not just the letter of the law. Jesus is challenging the Pharisees. Will you live as citizens of the kingdom or sons of the world? Are you going to be justified by me before God in heaven? Or are you going to seek to justify yourselves by putting in a moral performance in front of men? And to turn the screw one last time, to bring them and us to a point of response, just like the steward in the parable at the beginning... Jesus tells one more story. We read from verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they may also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said... They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have scripture. They have the law. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear scripture, then neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, there is loads and loads. This is one of my favourite stories, and we just don't have time to dig into it. 
There is loads here, but I want us to see how it continues. Jesus continues the flow of argument as he turns the screw on the Pharisees, brings them to a point of response. Jesus gives two contrasting characters, the rich man and Lazarus. The differences couldn't be more stark, right? We read it and we are profoundly aware. These are guys who are different in almost every conceivable way. Now, the rich man, we assume from the context and from the fact that Jesus used him here, was probably a religious man who obeyed the letter of the law. We don't know for sure. What we do know, though, is that he had clearly missed the heart of the law. He didn't understand the generous father heart of God, and he certainly wasn't living in response to it. He was not moved into action as a citizen of heaven to care for Lazarus, no. He was shrewd in a worldly sense. He had a lot of money. He wasn't losing it. But not shrewd in the way of those of the kingdom. Lazarus couldn't offer him anything. And so he didn't offer Lazarus anything. There was no benefit to him. To be generous to Lazarus. This man was trusting in his money to give him security. And so giving it away would have made him less secure, right? That's what we talked about earlier. If that's where your hope and your foundation and your security is, giving it away is eroding at what keeps you secure. That's a crazy thing to do. He didn't do that. His hope was in money and not God. He was trusting in his finances and not God. And so he stored up wealth for himself. And he used it to insulate himself against suffering and hunger and anything unpleasant. All the while Lazarus sat outside the gate with nothing. A man in many ways to be pitied. Sores that even the dogs would come and lick. Just... It's an unpleasant picture of poverty, a real vivid picture of poverty. He was, by the world's standards, a man to be pitied, and yet his name, Lazarus, Jesus didn't choose incidentally. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to pick a random name. This is a kind of common name for my story. Here we go. Lazarus means God helps. Or the Lord helps. And in Lazarus' lifetime, I would imagine people walk past him, maybe this rich man, as he sat at the gate day after day after day, walked past him and thought, yes, so good. Lazarus, God helps. He's helping you, isn't he, mate? The rich man was trusting in money. But we're told through his name, a resounding clue. It's like a don't miss it. Lazarus was trusting in God. There was nothing else worldly for him to trust in. His hope was in God. And they, for all their differences, met the same fate. The same one we're all going to meet. But what waited them was utterly different to one another. The man's money was gone. Perhaps it hadn't failed him in this life. Everything he thought he was going to get from it, he got. But now, it was useless. 
The rich man may have been shrewd or wise in a worldly sense, but it did him no good in eternity. Lazarus, however, his investment was in eternity. His trust was in God, and that's what counted. He was shrewd in the kingdom. He built his life on the right foundations. There's so much more to this story that we could get into. But ultimately, it's stacking up on the previous parable and what Jesus has been teaching. Be wise about what you put your trust in. The message of the kingdom of God will force you into a decision. You cannot serve God and money. What are you trusting in? I want to ask you to consider honestly, what's your security found in? What's your hope? What worries you more? Pharisees think this is dumb. Jesus is naive. He doesn't understand how money works. He doesn't understand. They've got needs. We would be fools to choose the pursuit of money and status which will not last over the pursuit of relationship with God which endures forever. The steward was commended for making a shrewd choice. I want to ask you, will you make a shrewd choice? What you do with your finances? Lazarus was welcomed because he put his trust in the right place. When this time comes to an end, how are you going to be found? Where is your trust? Really? Are you investing in eternity? As I was preparing for this week, um, I received news that a friend of mine, just a couple of years older than me, uh, called Andy, died suddenly. He was a Church of England vicar. Uh, He was hit by a car 10 days ago. And he passed away in hospital, in intensive care. Unexpectedly, suddenly, Andy's time was up. And I was struck whilst preparing this message that while there's a real sadness to Andy's passing, particularly for his family who are left behind, there's also great comfort that comes from knowing that Andy had invested well in eternity. He built his life on good foundations. He was trusting God, not money. And and that wasn't just lip service. It was evident to people that knew Andy in the way he lived. He was an incredibly generous guy with his time, with his money. He didn't have huge amounts by the world's standards. But what he had received, he was more than willing to share. He was generous with what he had because he understood what Jesus was trying to teach in Luke chapter 16. He knew that his significance and security wasn't found in his bank balance or the size of his house or the impressiveness of his wardrobe or any of those things, but that it was found in Christ alone. And he wanted to use the resources that he had at his disposal to point others to Christ. I know many, many people could share stories of how Andy pointed them to Jesus. 
not just with his words, but his actions. And as I reflected on it, I realised for myself the subtle ways that I can put too much stock in material or financial comfort, stability. I can be tempted to invest in the wrong place. Those of you who know us better as a family, like, we don't have a huge amount by lots of people's standards. We don't own our own home, and I'm okay with that. We have more than enough to meet our needs, and more than enough to be generous to others. But still, the temptation comes to keep more for ourselves, to seek to try and make my life here and now more comfortable instead of seeing how I might serve and bless others. And it's really easy to justify, isn't it? Because someone else always has more. It's really easy to justify when we begin to put our stock in material things, in what we have, because we can always point to someone, particularly around here, we can always point to someone who has more. I think it's an incredible challenge to us. And what makes it harder and easier all at the same time is there are no hard and fast rules. Jesus didn't give a, a teaching on when you get your paycheck, you should give this much to here and that much to there and this much to the church and that much to those and then you have to live on this bit. That's not what he did. He didn't address the externals like the Pharisees wanted to of what you do and don't do. What percentage goes here and there and the other. He got to our hearts and said, where is your hope? Because that makes all the difference What are you trusting in? Because that makes all the difference. What are you building your life on? Where is your security? Because that makes all the difference. And so I want us to respond now together. And as we do, I want to encourage you to check your heart. To ask honestly. To to pray and to say, God, search me. Know me. What am I putting my trust in? Have I begun to build my life in devotion to mammon? Or am I hoping in Jesus? God's word is clear. This parable was about the kingdom bringing us to a moment of decision. Where are we investing? What are we trusting in? There's a decision to make. There's a window of time for us to respond. You notice that's built into the parable, right? The guy didn't lose, he wasn't fired straight away. It wasn't like, you're done, that's it, go. There was time for him to respond. And until Christ returns, this is a time for us to respond. Or until he takes us home, this is a time for us to respond. I want to encourage you to choose well. To fix your heart on him. To know the welcome of the father like the prodigal son who came home and knew the generous, incredible, extravagant provision of his father. And to allow it to cause you to love others the same.
to be generous as you've received his generosity. James, why don't you come and lead us in communion?